Hello, it's David here, and thank you for dropping in on The Leader. If you like what you hear, maybe you should subscribe. Just hit the button on your podcast provider. We record on the day of publication, so it's always the most up-to-date commentary and analysis available for your commute home or however you like to listen to your podcasts. We'd love to see you every day at 4pm, so please do hit that subscribe button. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. You're getting a bike, and you're getting a bike, and you're... We'll have thousands of miles of protected lanes, £50 vouchers to help people get their, their old bikes done up again, uh, cycle training, help with uh, electric bikes. Boris Johnson wants us all cycling, but even with help to get or fix one, are the roads safe enough to ride on? We speak to London cycling campaign Simon Monk and... Having scaffolding and dark fabrics does have that underground nightclub feel. You feel like you're descending into the darkness. Into, in, into the chasm. Design Museum Director Tim Marlowe, how their new exhibition on electronic music recreates the club experience when all the clubs are closed. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is The Leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, it'll be cheaper to get or repair a bike, but will it be safe? This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Practicing what he preaches, Boris Johnson cycled to work this morning. He was on his bike heading for a press call in Beeston, where he reminisced with fellow enthusiasts about his days on the open roads before becoming PM. I used to be able to cycle everywhere. I was a wise mayor of London, and, they, and there was no problem at all. Nobody ever threatened me, well, except one chap did <laughs> The Prime Minister's unveiled what he's calling a £2 billion package to get more people on their bikes. There'll be protected lanes, tax cuts for e-bikes, and £50 repair vouchers for those pulling old cycles out of the shed and discovering they're not quite in the same shape they were when they went in there several months ago. It's all well and good, says our editorial column, but it's worthless without action on the roads to back it all up. 
There's a gap between splashing cash with a grand announcement and making sure that practical, lasting reform takes place to actually deliver the substance of what's promised. Nowhere is that more important than in London, where as many as possible of the pop-up cycle lanes created during lockdown need to be made permanent with physical segregation. More roads should be made access only to reduce vehicle numbers to a minimum. Others should be closed altogether to help create safer routes and politicians must not cave in if motorists protest about inconvenience to their journeys. The main reason is that cycling is not only good for us but good for everyone, not least our children who for too long have been forced to grow up in a city with too much pollution and potentially long-term harm to their health. Well, with me now is Simon Monk from the London Cycling Campaign. And Simon, there's a lot of money going into getting people cycling, so this must be the biggest opportunity for years. Is enough, though, really being done to take it? it yes, but not fast enough and not bold enough, but yes. I mean, and, and it's not just an opportunity. There is, a, I think there is a threat here as well, which is that, you know, with people, particularly in London, with people trying to avoid public transport for the foreseeable future, even if... Uh, social distancing rules change, even if things change, the signs are that there are a whole bunch of people not going back to work or, and very wary of public transport. So then what happens is the people that do need to go back to work, do need to go back to offices, but do need to also get around in London. It's pretty much down to the car, you know, private hire vehicles, taxis, whatever, or cycling. We cannot afford even a few percent of people to start getting into cars that, that previously were on public transport. We need those people to be on bikes or in, you know, scooting or whatever, some, some way of getting around that doesn't involve, you know, a, a combustion engine, basically. You know, we want that opportunity seized. It isn't quite being seized yet, you know. If there's increased traffic on London's roads, will things like a £50 voucher to repair that old bike you've had in the shed be enough to get people back on bikes? Or is the investment, does most of the investment have to go on making those roads safer? Yeah, I mean, so I'm the infrastructure campaigner for London Cycling Campaign, so kind of to some extent I would say this, but yes, the short answer is we know absolutely from every bit of international evidence we have, um, you know, that the, the cities that see a mass level of cycling are the cities that have a coherent network of safe routes. If we want mums, kids, you know, my grandma, you know, whoever to get on a bike, we need those safe coherent network we need people to be able to come out their front door and feel fairly safe um, riding from a to b obviously you know and we've seen you know my i went to drop in my bike at my local bike shop and, and got turned away at the door with a queue of about 50 people uh, you know and when i said can i get my bike service they kind of laughed at me and said yeah in september you know and that was that was where they're at so we've seen a huge number of people come out and pull bikes out of sheds and you know garages and whatever to get cycling again during during this crisis for fitness to get around etc you know, we've seen, I think, tripling of cycling on weekends and things like that, you know, kind of huge spikes in cycling um, uh, during the week as well, you know. So, but as the cars are coming back, the cycling's disappearing, you know, and that's a very clear kind of correlation. So, yeah, we need we need those vouchers. We need people to obviously get repairs for their bikes. We need people, there are a whole bunch of people who face barriers, not just in terms of safety, but in terms of their access to bikes, their access to parking bikes, things like that. There is a whole bunch of ancillary stuff, but the core of this is we'll get most people cycling, we'll get a, a lot of people cycling if we just provide really safe routes. After decades 
of the London cycling campaign existing, does it feel like there's a change now? Is it possible for us to go back or is this cycling is now the way forward? All the stuff that we've been doing has kind of come to fruition and it's coming to fruition now, which is great and we're really proud of that. But we're also really proud, you know, in a way of, of the leap. But at the same time, again, all of this comes in a response to multiple crises and it's taken a kind of pandemic to actually get them to do this stuff. And we're still at a point where, you know, the Dutch spend £20 a head on cycling per year. The government is now talking about eight, nine pounds per head, you know. So, so we're still at a point where, you know, and £27 billion for road spending. So while we're talking about £2 billion for walking and cycling. So we're still at a point where while the optics are right and we are taking this is a big leap and it shouldn't be underestimated um at the same time there is a real sense that they still need to go further and we're still having to push to get action when actually if we don't take action now you know we're in real real trouble next when you're on the dance floor you're very much in your own head but through the music, you're aware and you connect to other people. And you get that feeling in the exhibition. Tim Marlowe, how the design museum's bringing clubbing back. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This is how to make a comeback. With a soundtrack by French DJ Laurent Garnier, the Design Museum in London's not just reopening after lockdown, it's just about smashing the doors down with a blockbuster exhibition charting the history of electronic music from Kraftwerk to the Chemical Brothers. The Evening Standard's given it a five-star review, calling it a rallying cry for club culture, a scene that's been destroyed by coronavirus. The museum's director, Tim Marlowe, is with me now. And Tim, after months of being closed, was there pressure on to return with in musical parlance, a banger with this exhibition? It's a great question. I always feel the pressure to put on a banger uh, because that's, that's been the, the model, if you like, for museums. And we have to get interest and we have to generate the, the public uh, you know, confidence and interest in the institution. But I think you're right, the stakes were particularly high on this one. I mean, I think just the coming together of people, just seeing the staff come back to the museum, it was very emotional for, for us all. It was emotional for me to come back to the museum when, when it was empty, but that was tragic too. But I think you get this growing sense of communal need. And, um, and so that both uh, amplifies the, the need to do a great show, but it also encourages a kind of excited emotional response so far. The people who've been to see it have been quite overwhelmed. When they come out, people say, God, it's like going out to a club you know, or a, a gig for the first time in months. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people saying exactly that. The Evening Stand is giving it five stars in its review today. How have you managed to recreate that atmosphere inside the museum? Well, the overall design of the show, which is rather wonderful, I think, um, is it, it creates a kind of nightclub ambiance. But those galleries, you know, our main ground floor galleries, I mean, they're dark. There's no natural light in them, which... Part of me would love to have, a, have the option, but we don't. But it makes them very flexible and it makes them anonymous 
in a good way that you can recreate anything you want. So actually having scaffolding and dark fabrics and a labyrinthine set of, uh, of uh, journeys through, which we've now had to condense into just one, does have that underground nightclub feel. Um, you feel like you're descending into the darkness, into, in, into the chasm. Uh, and then um, we, there's, there's various ways of lighting and monitors and DJ booths and discrete spaces to evoke particular cities. You know, you go into a little Detroit area or Chicago area or New York area. And, and then, of course, there's the overarching soundtrack to the whole exhibition. I mean, you can plug into individual soundtracks. But this is um, curated and, and selected by Laurent, Laurent Garnier, the great French DJ. And then that is visually reflected upon in a brilliant installation called The Core by uh, 1024 Architecture, which, so these 24,000 LED bulbs respond visually to the rhythms of the soundtrack. And all that softens you up, I'd say, and, prepa and prepares you, but never fully, for the grand finale, you know, the kind of climax, um, which is the Chemical Brothers, uh, in collaboration with uh, Smith and Lyle, where you go into a space, it's um, got to keep on, and um, is the track and is the space, and you get, there's that acrid smell of, of, of dry ice, this stroboscope, but this fantastic digital projection where what was initially conceived for, for a big festival, Glastonbury, is reconfigured as a special installation here. And that's fantastically immersive and overwhelming. But social distancing rules mean that the one thing that would be missing from that kind of atmosphere of the nightclub is you don't have hundreds of people all squeezing around together with you, do you? Is it, does it feel... Like you're going through this on your own, though, or do you feel as though you're part of something? So that, again, is a really good question. It's difficult to say. I mean, so far, my sense is it rather brilliantly mirrors the feeling you get when you're on the dance floor, he says, trying to remember how long ago that was. But anyway, you're very much in your own head and you go into your own bubble, but through the music... And then obviously through your senses, you're aware and you connect to other people. And you get that feeling in the exhibition. So it's both safely distanced because you keep apart from people and we're only allowing 60 an hour, 15 every 15 minutes. But at the same time, because there is a literally a rhythm, an overarching soundtrack, and there's a kind of sense of a pulse running through the exhibition, you do feel connected in that way. Um, but I think, I don't think we, we would pretend that this won't leave you wanting to go out more and experience the real thing, the nightclub, the live performance. And, you know, we found it tough in the museum world in the last four and a half months, you know, not knowing when we can open and in what conditions we can open. But, you know, the live performance, music, theatre, I mean, they're still facing existential crisis. So I'm glad that we can reach out to them in, in this sense. I'm equally glad to admit they will never substitute the real thing. It just makes me yearn for, for, for more of that, but also for more expansive museum experience too. But in the circumstances, it's not bad. And, you know, we could, if we pour a bit of sort of beer around at the weekends and let the floor go sticky and start to smell a bit, we can make it even more authentic, but I don't think we're allowed to do that with health and safety. <laughs> But isn't that exactly what you want from an exhibition like this? You, the, you precisely want people to go, I want more of this. You want people, particularly now, to remember what it was like and what it could be again. Yeah, absolutely. And also to have the capacity to reflect, think, bring their own truths or experiences or narratives look at the options we've given. We're not saying there's a definitive journey or narrative, but I, I think it does throw open questions and I think it does provoke. And I think 
absolutely, as you say, like a good art exhibition, like a thought-provoking architectural experience or design experience, it makes you want to dig deeper, makes you want to experience things in, in different physical or visceral ways as well as intellectual ways, absolutely. You can read our review in the newspaper and online at standard.co.uk. And that's The Leader. Keep up with overnight events with our audio news bulletins. You'll get those through your smart speaker at 7am. Just ask for the news from The Evening Standard. This podcast is back tomorrow at 4pm.